tuned in. To the Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Ryan Bradley looking after you this evening. Graham Hill taking a much-deserved holiday. He never has a weekend off. Don't worry, though. I've got all the regular guests to keep you entertained. We gaze skywards this hour with astronomy with Dr Grant Christie. Movies with James Crute and the wonderful Max Cryer will be along after nine o'clock. Max is going to tell us why cicadas make the sound they do. He's going to have a crack at being like David Attenborough, I feel. After 10 o'clock, human statistics with Jonathan Dodd and then a really interesting couple from New York who are here for a show, Seth Bloom and Christina Gelson. That chat is well worth staying up for after 10. After 11, we will play some music. We're going to pick an album, a New Zealand album, from the early 2000s and enjoy it. It is a beauty. I'll tell you more later. First, though, Dr Grant Christie, and we look to the stars next here on Radio Life. Tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Astronomy with Dr. Grant Christie. Good evening, Grant. How Hi, are Ryan. You? I'm well. We're moving away from those long winter nights into, well, not summer yet, but into spring, yeah, so your, getting, your gazing yeah. time is getting a little bit shorter? It is, it is. We're, it's uh, changing quite rapidly at the moment as we're sort of heading towards the, uh, into well into spring now. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you, you notice the changes in the constellation. We're out every night looking at the stars. Uh, and, um, and we've got a fantastic lineup of planets as well, mm. which has been there for a while. Um, it's been a good week for stargazing too. It hasn't been bad. It's been, it's been some nice clear nights. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've been having a good, uh, a good run. Now let's talk a bit about a, our picture of the week. There, there is a couple to discuss here. First of all, NASA's mission to the asteroid belt. Uh, talk to us about this. This spacecraft is running on hydrazine. What's that? Oh, that's just a propellant that they use on spacecraft. Um, so the. It, it's, uh, it, well, it, it's just a, sort of like a compressed gas of some sort that they mm. jet out. I don't know the t all the technical details, but basically when it leaves Earth, it has enough hydrazine to do the mission, but eventually that's going to run out. So what's happening with Dawn now is they're down to the last little scraps of the hydrazine they have, so they won't be able to control the spacecraft anymore. Um, and uh, So Dawn's gone a long way. Yeah, it has. It was launched in 2007, September, uh, and it took it uh, a few years to reach the asteroid belt. It had to uh, first went to Vesta, uh, which is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt, 
uh, and it spent several years orbiting Vesta, mapping it and learning it, sort of t measuring the chemistry. And then after that, it uh, then departed from Vesta mm. uh, and uh, made a course for Ceres, which is the largest body in the asteroid belt. It's actually called a dwarf planet, mm. uh, quite a lot bigger, and it's actually sort of big enough to be a sphere, basically a spherical shape. Um, and uh, I might say that Vesta and series together combined uh, are 45 percent of the total mass of the objects in the asteroid belt so they weigh outweigh all the other asteroids by you know pretty much almost almost the same weight anyway where's the asteroid belt in relation okay. to our solar yeah, system yeah right so it's between mars and jupiter right so once you get past mars then yep. you often see in the diagrams of the solar system the sort of belt of little objects um yeah. it uh, looks really dense but actually when you're out in the asteroid belt you wouldn't you know you'd be real lucky to actually see an asteroid i mean it's, they're not mm. as dense as the pictures in the book show um but there are a lot of asteroids known there's about sort of three quarters of a million with known discovered so far that have uh, measured orbits and they'll be they're down to the smaller size ones now all the big ones are known but Ceres was discovered uh, i mean it's it's like a it's it's the only dwarf planet in the inner solar system mm. um and uh it's uh, around about a thousand kilometres across. Uh, it was discovered in the year 1800, and it was the first. Um, uh, so that means it was discovered bef after Uranus was known, mm. but before Neptune was known. Mm. So it was a big deal when Ceres was found. Here was another planet out there, and the people at that time had no way of really knowing much about it because the telescopes were very poor. Uh, very like our amateur or small amateur ones today and so uh, uh so series has been known for a while so um the uh so they, they wanted to understand it was an opportunity for nasa to visit um a large asteroid which will have some interesting geological past to it and they, that's mm. what they discovered with um with uh, vesta and then at series they were studying sort of a, a, a somewhat bigger object which is um, about twice the diameter of Vesta, uh, that Ceres. And so they've been in orbit around Ceres, and it's still, the spacecraft's still in orbit. It's done very detailed mapping of it. It's uh, shown that it's a much more complex world. It could have liquid water below the surface. Um, it's got a complex geology. It's obviously had um, sort of, uh, um, sort of, sorry, like, um, sort of kind of like volcanoes but not not necessarily lava sort of spitting out um salts and uh stuff like that that when it dries out on the surface leaves a very white um, patch uh, so that was the thing where as the spacecraft was first approaching series for uh, getting our first close-up views of it there was this crater with a very bright white spot in the middle of it and they could, couldn't from a distance you couldn't really resolve what it was so it was a lot of fun speculation or maybe it's a sort of an alien uh, sort of, well yeah or maybe it's an alien base there or something uh, that's mm -hmm. been sitting there and we've now discovered this uh, alien base on series uh, but uh, as we uh, as the images got better and better and better it was clear that it was just a sort of like a cryo volcano um, spitting out uh, salty briny fluid from below we don't know how long it, when it last did that, but it, uh, obviously it, it was relatively recent, um, you know, the last few million years or something like that. Mm. Uh, and uh, the stuff was, uh, the, the salt had dried out and it left the sort of very white um, deposits over the very dark soil that the um, you know, objects like uh, Ceres have. So it, it, it was a contrast between the salty, uh, dried out salty stuff, just like you'd see on a beach, you know, you can get salty 
water, salt water dries out and leaves a sort of salt on the black sand at Pihar or something like yep. that, you see, yep. see that sort of same phenomenon. You know, this asteroid belt, when they say, oh, there was an asteroid uh, that, that has come close to Earth, are these all these asteroids in our belt just revolving around the sun in full orbit? Is it the ones from further afield that come through <laughs> our solar system okay. that are dangerous? or? Uh, is it these yes, ones? yes. So that you have the ones that are orbiting in the terrestrial belt are no hazard to us. They're, right. they're simply in a fairly circular orbit there. They never come close to us. Um, but there's other asteroids that are classified, called astronomers call potentially hazardous ones. These are ones yep. that have often escaped from the asteroid belt and are in sort of different orbits that uh, bring them that could bring them on an intersection with Earth, for example. Mm. So those uh, are ones that uh, NASA and other people looking for asteroids are trying to you know, fill in all those gaps, find all of those potentially hazardous ones mm. so that then in the future they could decide what to do about them. Mm. Send Will Smith up. <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, there's all sorts of plans uh, about, mm. you know, how you could deal with one if you found it was actually heading your way. But it's, uh, yeah, so they've, you know, the, the main thing, the takeaway out of this is that they've learned a great deal about the internal structure of Ceres. Um, yep. And, uh, I mean, the other dwarf planet which we'll talk about today I presume is uh, also uh, is Pluto mm. um, and of course once we got to Pluto and saw what it was it turned out to be a very complex world mm. uh, it's a bit it's somewhat bigger than um, than uh, than Ceres but it's uh, certainly there similar sort of objects okay hold that thought we'll get there but let's talk about this fascinating picture it's NASA's Curior Curiosity Mars rover the Curiosity is just chilling out on Mars and they've put up a fantastic, uh, it's about a 1 minute 20 YouTube clip that we'll put up on the website now, the Weekend Variety Wireless, and you can go on for that 1 minute 20 that it's live, you can use your mouse to scroll around and look at a 360 degree panorama of its current location on Mars. This is really cool. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of like if you were standing on Mars or standing on the top of Curiosity and looking around where it's looking, that would show you the terrain that it's in uh, very very graphically uh, and more so than you know like a still picture will and you can pan up and down you can look above the horizon and down at the ground just around you where curiosity's been boring holes and rocks it's uh, just sitting there and they've done a 360 with a camera and got a sort of build up this sort of um, complete uh, view around the horizon and, and I mean the first thing that strikes me when I see that is just what a bleak landscape it is mm. uh, I mean people talk about going to Mars and uh, making it into a sort of a habitable planet or something like that or having bases there but um there is nothing there i Looks mean like it, a I mean, long way from home it, it is and uh you know i must say it doesn't appeal to me much as a place to go to but i mean i know that a lot of people uh, would be happy to go there and not come back so you know it's just it's just a, interesting to look at it and i think different people would have different takeaways from it Mm. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm probably more interested in the geology and the rocks and the history of it as a planet than wanted to actually go there and I like the cool thing I like is that there's these little uh, scales that <laughs> as you look further away on the ground it tells you how many centimeters there tells you how many uh, meters it is looking at sort of zero to 50 meters so as you look 
uh, into, uh, I guess, across the surface of Mars, you can start to gauge, oh, that's about a metre, and you start yes. to, I guess, get your bearings a little bit. That, that's, it's nice they've included that to get a sense of scale. Yes, indeed. And, and also, the Mars being a smaller world than Earth, the horizon's actually closer to you than you think, and its atmosphere is very thin. It's only about 1% of the Earth's atmosphere, so there's not as much um, absorption of light by its atmosphere, unless it's full of dust, which, of course, we've just had a major dust storm that's been raging on Mars now for a couple of months, um, and that's slowly sort of clearing so you can still so, so some of the sharpness in that picture is lost a little bit by mm. the residual dust that's in the atmosphere that still it'll take uh, months to clear away completely okay that's the weekend variety wireless uh, radio live page and it's nasa's Cur curiosity mars rover well worth a look let's get on to pluto is it a planet isn't it a planet it is a planet it's not where do you sit on this uh well, personally, I, I don't see that there's any justification for calling it a planet. Well, I mean, it's well for a start. So just to put it in perspective, it's uh, it's a very small world. Mm. Um, and uh, back in uh, 2000, when, when when it was first discovered in 1930, uh, astronomers didn't have they, they knew roughly how far away it was and worked out its orbit didn't reasonably they think it was quickly. Was a moon? Was it a Neptune's moon? Uh, well, they, well, one of one of the ideas was that maybe it was a moon of Neptune that had escaped. We now yep. know that's not the case, but okay. the, the, but it, it, they didn't know they, when they first discovered it. They thought it was about the they thought it was a planet. They thought it was about the mass of Earth, mm. um, a similar size to Earth, that sort of size body. In which case, you know, nobody would be arguing about it. But as they, uh, it wasn't until 1978 when they discovered that Pluto had a moon called Charon. Once they saw that. Charon's moon was there, uh, they were able to work out its mass and it comes out about one four hundredth the mass of Earth. Mm. So it's about a fifth of the mass of our moon. It's a small world, it's very small. And yes, it's uh, big enough to call it, pull itself into a sphere and what these uh, planetary astronomers are trying to argue is that um, that, that should be the, the principal criterion that you have, uh, um, you know, it, it's big enough to pull itself enough gravity that it becomes a spherical shape and not sort of lopsided like um, Vesta, for example, is the one we were just talking about, is, uh, is, is certainly isn't round, whereas Ceres, which is sort of about twice the diameter, has got enough gravity to, you know, squeeze itself into a spherical shape. Um, and the moon, our moon is too, it's pretty close to a sphere, it's a bit irregular mm. on the inside, but it's not bad. Um, but, uh, but the moon, I mean, the moon is um, like sort of five times. Uh, mm. So currently, Pluto is not a planet. No, it's uh, astronomers in, in 2006 uh, at the International Astronomical Union meeting, and uh, triennial meeting, uh, decided uh, to come up with a, 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 a sort of criteria for what is a planet, because they've been discovering more of these sort of objects out in the solar system, particularly out in the out beyond Pluto, and mm. the argument was, well, you know, there's probably thousands of objects that size. So, do mm. we want a solar system that consists of sort of eight large objects, um, and uh, plus thousands, potentially thousands of other objects of Pluto's general size that are out in the outer part of the solar system to also be called planets? Uh, and you know, most. To, to me, it seems sort of totally logical. There's a huge gap between our smallest planets, which are Mercury and Mars, 
and, and Pluto. And Pluto. I mean, I mean, they they outweigh Pluto by quite a lot, and they have completely different character. So they added this extra little criteria that it, not only should it be big enough, a planet has to be something an object big enough to pull itself into a sphere. It also has to be big enough that it basically dominates its region of space. In other words, it's the it's the big heavy guy in that piece of space, and other things get out of the road. And uh, so. Uh, basically, it's not sharing its orbit with some other body. Uh, now, what these people are arguing uh, uh, that have just brought this up again is, oh, well, you know, even the Earth, uh, there's other things in our orbit, they cross our orbit, uh, and Earth hasn't cleaned out its orbit either. I mean, there's these potentially hazardous asteroids, for example. Mm, mm. But the fact is that they're, they're very few and they're very small. Mm. Um, so if there was another body about the size of Earth in our orbit, that would have been resolved eons ago. Uh, so, and it was with big collisions between planets when the solar system was young and planets had formed, they were competing for their space and there was a big, you know, quite a few big collisions uh, that shattered some bodies, um, you know, producing a lot of the stuff in the asteroid belt, for example. Um, but in the asteroid belt, there was no big planet out there to soak up all the little bits. Mm. Um, whereas in the Earth's orbit, uh, Earth was massive enough that if it encountered something, it either threw it away or it collided with the earth and was absorbed into the earth and mm. helped build the earth and so it became out it sort of was a survival of the fittest mm. but that process doesn't happen in the asteroid belt because there's no object there that's singularly big enough to dominate that piece of space if if Ceres for example was three or four times or you know ten times heavier then the asteroid belt would have been hoovered up by Correct. Ceres and it would have grown so that's the, really the sort of key difference and what they're saying is that, that that's not an important difference I, I, I would say and I'm not a planetary astronomer but I would say that logically that is the, the, the sort of the case that um, you know it's demonstrably true that sort of Neptune dominates its bit of space mm. and uh, basically it pushes Pluto around and the, Earth must the only reason Pluto is still there it happens to be in an orbit where although it comes it's in the sort of same region of space neptune's pushed it into an orbit that never so pluto never comes near it but there is a time when pluto just recently is actually closer to the earth than neptune neptune sort of goes they do yeah that's right it can do it so it's, no, it's nothing to do with the distance but pluto's orbit is inclined at a high angle and mm. um, that's mean it's been pushed around in the past um, by something else um, and that's true of all the bodies outside in the outer really outer frozen reaches of the solar system there there's nothing out there that seems to be you except this hypothetical planet nine or planet x that's could be there that, that this is so there's, we're talking eight planets now yeah we're, we're talking about the eight that we know of and there's a possibility and it's still just just a possibility that there's another massive planet maybe up to 10 times the mass of earth orbiting way out past pluto way out past Pluto mm. um, because some of the objects discovered out in that part of the solar system seem to be being basically shepherded by some other object. You can explain the strange orbits they have if they had this sort of heavier a planet mass object out there. Um, how the planet actually ever got, if, if it's true, how it ever got to be out there is still not known. Um, it could have been captured by the sun. It could have been a, a planet... Um, when the sun first formed in a star cluster with such of other stars around, um, there was interchange of planets between mm. stars. Stars would come close to each other, much more likely than ever today, because the planets, the stars are all far apart in our part of, you know, the sun's siblings have all gone their own way around the galaxy. But if 
back in the birth cluster when they're all tightly together in the same sort of region of space, then a chance of encounter between two stars was similar or not, you know, reasonably likely, and then they would swap planets. So one planet could jump from another one. So if there is a hyper, if there's this heavier planet out in the outer part of the solar system, then it most likely was um, a capture in that way. Um, it could have formed in the central part of the solar system and been ejected by Jupiter, for example. In other words, it just drifted too close to Jupiter and Jupiter gave it a slingshot. That's a possibility as well. But uh, So at the moment, it's still an open question. But So Let right now, like, that's right. So mm. right now, I mean, it would be really exciting if it's true, but it, there's other explanations for those strange orbits as well that keep, you know... People who analyse, uh, run computer models and simulations of the solar system can explain those orbits without invoking a large planet. But a large planet, if it exists, we'll probably discover it within the next decade. It can't hide forever. An, an object that size with modern telescopes and the ability to uh, survey the sky looking for really faint things that move has uh, got so much better and in the next decade we will know for certain. You put a fantastic uh, piece of imagery, imagery in my head there. The Earth being created and just the mass of it gobbling up all those elements that make up the Earth. And we must have been so lucky of the ones that were around us at that yeah. particular well, time. That, well, that makes us a beautiful place uh, where life and oxygen can flourish. That's right. Well, the, I mean, the... The young Earth, we know, got hit by something pretty massive, maybe sort of half the size of Mars or Mars-sized objects, a big object. To wipe the dinosaurs and out? No, this was or way prior. before there was any life. This was in the first, um, you know, sort of tens of millions of years, mm. while the Earth was still hot, basically. Yeah. And but and it was that collision that uh, that basically produced the moon so i mean basically there's no way we can explain the moon without invoking a collision with another planet-sized object so mm. there was that was when the solar system was young and it hadn't settled into the rhythm that it's got now mm. um so when the planets were still forming still being built up there were a lot of collisions going on um and uh, we know this from you know just we collect bits of broken planet and meteorites mm. that land on earth and and they know what what collisions formed a lot of these meteorites so uh, so there's certainly a, a big um, uh, you know the, the early solar system was a chaotic place with a lot of collisions uh, and the earth was formed by the building up of these collisions over millions of years mm. gradually hoovering up more and more stuff um, the reason Jupiter got so big it just happened to be in a started growing accumulating bits of material in a cold part of the solar system where there was still a lot of water ice <clears throat> in the in the vicinity and water ice is really sticky stuff so jupiter grew really really fast and once it got to a certain size it just hoovered up absolutely everything mm. in its vicinity and jupiter's been bossing around the solar system ever since bossing it well it yeah. is it's a, it's a sort of strong arming everything i mean yeah. it's uh, um, you know, like uh, any body that uh, comes close to Jupiter either gets absorbed by Jupiter, in other words, collides with it and becomes part of Jupiter, or it gets tossed out of the solar system or into the outer reaches of the solar system. And mm. Jupiter's responsible for throwing out you know, millions, trillions of comets out of our solar system in the early time, uh, which is, you know, if it wasn't for Jupiter there, then life wouldn't have been possible on Earth probably. We would have been pelted by all these comets that never got thrown out. So, you know, Jupiter's a great protector, if you like, of our solar mm, system and okay. allowed stability that allowed life to develop on a planet like Earth.
Mm, and uh, it's been fascinating watching Jupiter 2 up in the sky this winter. More astronomy next with Dr Grant Christie. Life, the universe and everything in between. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. On Radio Live. Astronomy continued with Dr. Grant Christie this Saturday evening. As we gaze skywards, uh, NASA's Dawn mission is drawing to a close. No, we've been there. We've been there. We've, we've yarned about that, haven't we, Grant? Yeah, Dawn's so, coming to a close. i just finish off there, though. Yeah, uh, go. Because Dawn, the spacecraft, one of the things that they don't want is a spacecraft to crash onto Ceres. It, it's in orbit. It's run out of fuel. It's going to stay orbiting there for a very long time. Mm. But uh, they say that there's no chance of it colliding in the next 20 years and probably quite a lot longer than that uh, with falling out, you know, coming out of orbit and uh, crashing down on Ceres. But what they don't want to do is continue contaminate series with um, life forms from Earth. Mm. They want to keep it in a sort of a pristine state. So they've only been looking at it from space, from a distance, and nothing's landed on it. They're environmentalists, they want... these astronomers. <laughs> well, that's they? right. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, one of the, I mean, let's face it, you know, finding life in the solar system else other than on Earth would be one of the biggest things. And you don't want to start contaminating these. We've already contaminated Mars, for example, and effectively the Moon, although, you know, radiation arguably sort of sterilizes the Moon. Um, but, uh, you know, so. You know, there's rules. I mean, you, you know, you don't send your rover, you don't yeah. send your rovers anywhere near water on Mars. If you think there's water there, that's a no-go. Leave that's it. a reasonably, that's internationally, that's off limits. So Rocket Lab got a, got a bit of stick. They copped a bit of stick for you know space junk potentially. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that was a. Yeah, okay, that, that was a, a slightly different thing, I mean, because that wasn't going to contaminate, uh, Earth's no. already contaminated. They, they had a good but, comeback for but, that, but, <coughs> yeah. but it is out there. People are, uh, are conscious. They don't want just objects and, and, and I guess, rubbish, for want of, of a better term, floating around That's in right. space. Well, the things that went to Pluto, like New Horizons, it just flew by and didn't stop, it didn't contaminate. Pluto and in these worlds, so we don't want to sort of start contaminating these things, and there's no way we could sterilise a spacecraft and not contaminate it. So, so basically, Dawn is for a long time from now on. It's we, it's going to be dead, just in orbit around Ceres, but it will, uh, um, you know, presumably in the future there'll be space missions again to Ceres, and they'll be able to, mm. you know, do something with Dawn. Um, uh, you know, maybe push it out of orbit so that it doesn't crash onto the uh, onto the world. Okay, there was uh, two binary stars that were planned to merge in two thousand and twenty-two. Yeah, well, imminently pl planned. I, I say planned. Well, predicted. Predicted is the better word. Why? It turns, it turns What's out, wrong with this? Well, it would be tremendously exciting. I mean, uh, you know, there's uh, you know th about. Three quarters of all the stars in our galaxy are members of binary systems, and there's two stars orbiting with each other. Um, the sun's relatively unusual in being a single star without another star as well. But and some of these stars get so close to each other that they actually uh, effectively uh, almost absorb inside each other. So they look like a peanut, or you know, with two two uh, lobes uh, mm -hmm. and sharing a common atmosphere. And those stars, we know, you can, we can measure the period as they turn around each other um, and they get down to a few, you know, hours spinning around on their axis, uh, in their orbital axis. And we know that eventually, I mean, they're going to, you know, radiate away orbital energy um, and it's just physics and eventually those two stars will merge, merge in some way. It's never been observed, except there's this binary star that's... Um, 
as a very short period and obviously uh, and they can be measuring its period over time and a paper came out last year claiming that based on the records that were available they're predicting that it would be merging in other words the binary would suddenly merge into a single object uh, producing a uh, you know never be foreseen sort of phenomenon for astronomers uh, in 2022 and this was wow you know that's mm. that's and uh, but it turns out that uh, a graduate student at San Diego University doing his master's degree um, started looking at this thing and looking at the data and he discovered a, a f an error in the times that were published in the paper um, and it, it was just simply, a, it was unbelievable that it was overlooked, but it turns out that there is no evidence now based on the fact that he's identified that fault in the data, there is no evidence now of anything like a merger in any time that matters to us. So it's not going to happen in 2022. So that uh, exciting object now, that event is now off the oh table. Oh dear, oh dear. So that's, uh, yeah, but it's... Uh, um, we'll have to wait. Yeah, well, it's, yes, you know, it's, it's uh, keeping time and the time you make your observations and putting them all on a common sort of scale is something that's just standard for astronomers. I mean, you're not, uh, you know, you we did away with, you know, whether in New Zealand time or Greenwich Mean Time or whether we have a sort of a universal time that is the same for everybody on the planet um, and uh, have a way of counting time so that it doesn't really matter where you are or where the Earth happens to be on its axis as to what the time is. You have a universal time. But what about my birthday? Uh, well, your birthday is fixed by <laughs> calendar dates. Well, I can tell you, I could tell you what the universal time was of your, you know, of your birthday uh, and how many days have elapsed. Astronomers often want to work out how many days have elapsed from some date like now back to some time in the 19th century. Um, and you want to know how many times the Earth turned on its axis. And, you know, calendars can be a bit dicey, and that's what happened here. Somebody got some, uh, you know, um, in a preparation of a manuscript, got a date wrong, d didn't realise that, used that as sort of the truth and found out that, uh, and made this <coughs> erroneous prediction. So it's, uh, the, the, on that one hand, it's disappointing, but it's also yeah, you know, very much to the credit of a... We absolutely digress, but the issue I have with our calendar is New Year's. It doesn't mean anything astrologically or, or astronomically. Nothing. Astronomically, there we go. <laughs> but in in terms of Matariki, when the star cluster comes up and the the days start to get longer again, that feels more like a natural New Year or or a, an, another year coming with the sun coming back for longer. I relate to that more. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the the the, the dates that are. Uh, um, sort of relevant to our, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, for example, like the spring, autumn, uh, summer, winter. Yeah, so, you know, the time of when the uh, Sun is furthest south in the southern hemisphere, or in other words, our midsummer, um, around about the 21st of December. I mean, it's no accident that Christmas is round about the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. Yep. I mean, it's yep. sort of, the, you know, these aren't sort of total accidents. And, and things like Easter's determined well, that, in a sort that's of crazy... That's the only one. That's the only one. Well, it's sort one. of related to the phase of the moon. Of the moon. But, Correct. you know, it's a really complicated. I, I never get my head around to all of that. But it's so, um, yeah, so, but, you know, all peoples uh, who are sort of 
you know, prior to our days today with sort of atomic clocks, uh, had, uh, you know, used seasons and pretty much the, the change of seasons that they could all feel, unless they're living in the tropics where you don't really get a change of seasons at all. Um, but uh, certainly in the two hemispheres and the Polynesians, it became really important, probably the further south they came in New Zealand and uh, Rapa Nui were the furthest, most southerly parts of Polynesia. Um, mm. So, um, but they sort of kept the same sort of method of uh, working out their, you know, their seasons that they had in the in the more tropical parts. Mm. Um, hey, just just getting back, we, we we are going off track there. But what something that has been observed, even though the binary star merger will not be happening in twenty twenty two, but last year there was an event where two neutron stars merged and we're starting to see uh, some evidence of this now. Yes, well, um, yeah, that was that was a really exciting event. So this was, uh, we knew about binary neutron stars. So a neutron star uh, happens when you have a, 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 a star at least heavier than about eight or ten times the mass of our sun. Mm. And it's, it's inevitably is going to end its life as a supernova. It's going to eventually get to the point where it runs out of fuel and the, the star's core, it collapses, and that creates an enormous explosion, blows off all the outer layers, and the sort of the centre of the star, the old core of the star, gets crushed into a, a almost, well, almost into a black hole. Sometimes it can be a black hole, but in the case of a neutron star, it hasn't quite made it almost a black hole. Um, so it's something like it would have to give it a picture in your mind, it would be something like the mass of our sun, but mm. crushed into something the size of Auckland. Oof. Sort of about 10 kilometres across. Something, and then, uh, boom. Uh, radius or something like that. Yeah, so so that's an extremely dense object. And what can happen, and, and you know, we know, we know we've seen these events, uh, is that you can actually have this happen in a binary star. So you start off with two massive stars. Mm. Uh, and in due course, one becomes a supernova and produces a neutron star. And sometime after that, the lighter of the two also becomes a supernova mm. and produces another neutron star. So binary neutron stars, two neutron stars orbiting each other, are relatively common um, in the universe as a whole. You know, so, um, so what happens then is that as those two stars orbit each other over a long period of time, like billions and billions of years... Um, then they gradually lose energy and they orbit closer and closer and closer together. And Einstein's theory of relativity says that when you've got these two objects spinning around each other, eventually they're going to merge. And that's exactly mm. what was seen for the first time last year. Um, so uh, that's... Uh, and that, that produced a whole range of radiation. Uh, the, the puzzle that's just come up now is that um, there's another phenomenon that astronomers have observed called um, short gamma ray bursts. These are when you, you're looking with a, a gamma a telescope from space, yep. looking out into the universe. Uh, every now and again, there's a little flash of gamma rays. These are the highest energy gamma type of rays. Light. Gamma rays. They're the highest form of energy light that you can have. Yep. So, so they're only produced by really energetic processes. And these gamma ray flashes are going off at a regular basis all over the sky, none close to us. These are all in d distant galaxies. Mm. So the question is what's forming those flashes? Um, and uh, it turns out that, um, oh, I might say that those were first discovered by, in the 1960s, by satellites put up by the Americans and the Russians to watch out for the other's nuclear test. When you have a nuclear test of a weapon on Earth, uh, one thing you get is a flash of gamma rays. So they sit up 
to, to monitor the, each other's activities, they had satellites up there, and so they were measuring these gamma ray flashes, looking for them on Earth, but also seeing them out in the universe, but not telling astronomers about them. That, that was all classified for a long time. Is that right? So then all of a sudden astronomers realised, what the hell are these, when it was finally released, they oh, had all right. these flashes going off all over the sky, and... Uh, on a you know, sort of on a regular basis. So what was causing them? And finally, in recent years, they'd finally eliminated all the possibilities that, because these are incredibly energetic events, that they decided that you know the most likely process doing that is two neutron stars finally merging together after orbiting each other for billions of years, finally drifting towards each other until finally they merge in a cataclysmic merger, producing a sort of a, a pulse of gamma rays that come flying out in a very narrow beam. Um, it's only about five degrees wide, so it's a very narrow pencil of gamma rays coming across. So the so when we saw this one last year, um, you know, it was covered by hundreds and or about 3,000 different astronomers working in different collaborations using different instruments monitored this event. Um, but what they didn't see was the, um, the sort of the evidence of this gamma ray pulse coming out of this merger. So people were a bit sort of, you know, unhappy about that because they were hoping that that would be the explanation for these gamma ray pulses. But in fact, uh, what they've now found is that uh, follow-up observations over the last year have shown that it did actually produce a gamma ray pulse. It just was. It was marked a bit by all the other crud that had been blown off, mm. and but it's now visible, and they've been able to see it. They know the direction it's pointing, um, so it now looks like uh, that's filled in a big sort of piece in the puzzle of this uh, high energy universe that uh, we now can say with reasonable certainty that um, short gamma ray bursts are definitely caused by um, merging neutron stars, and the corollary of that is that because we know how many of these short gamma ray bursts are going off in the sky because satellites now catch them all, we get some idea of how many merging neutron stars are happening in the universe as a whole. And that tells you a great deal about the evolution of the universe and the type of conditions, because you have to have only certain types of conditions can form the massive stars that ultimately produce neutron stars. So it's a... Well, they're created by supernovas themselves, aren't That's they? right. And, and, and stars that are heavier than our, at 10 times the mass of our sun, which is what you need in order to eventually produce a neutron star, are um, quite rare. Out of the total number of stars, there'd be a tiny fraction of 1% of all the stars that ever form in our galaxy would be at that range. But mm. because we've got, you know... 400, 300 billion stars in our galaxy, there's a reasonable number of them have become neutron stars in the past. So uh, so we don't know of any of these that are close to us in our galaxy, but there's certainly a lot of uh, um, these binary, um, um, binary um, neutron stars. Sometimes they're called pulsars. If they've got, uh, if they're strongly magnetic, then some astronomers <laughs> call them pulsars. Is that when Nissan got the name of the Ah, uh, yeah, they stole the it. crappy oh, we should have sued their ass. The pulsar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hayabusa 2 prepares to collect samples from the surface of the tiny asteroid Ryugu. Yes, this is a Japanese, a JAXA, Japanese uh, space. Um, uh, program and it's uh, their satellite, this is Hayabusa 2 which is a successor to Hayabusa, the original one that went to a different asteroid. So they've now got another spacecraft now in orbit around this small asteroid, it's only about a kilometre across, mm. which is a masterpiece of space navigation in itself. I mean the gravity is so tiny and weak that to actually 
you've got to approach it very, very slowly, otherwise you just go ripping past. It hasn't got enough gravity to catch you, yes. unlike the, something like the Earth. So uh, they d tremendous that they got their spacecraft there, and the object of this mission is to to go down, eventually to go down and grab a bit of the surface material and bring it back to Earth, because this asteroid is considered to be one of the sort of the... the original building blocks of the solar system um, and it'll be ri probably rich in organic material um, not necessarily made by life but the sort of stuff that uh, that can be made in big clouds of cold molecular clouds in space when the as the solar system formed um, so it's not just uh, it's complex material it's amino acids and other stuff and they want to get a pristine piece of this material that our solar system was built on mm. and bring it back to earth to be analyzed in detail uh, in labs on earth and so that's really the the primary mission so what they've been doing is going through uh, test procedures and you can follow Hayabusa um, if you just check it out you can, they've got a great Twitter um, feed so if you follow them on Twitter then when they're doing a maneuver and stuff they're sending out tweets and pictures uh, live and so it's really interesting to watch Twitter's great for keeping up with what's happening in astronomy so uh, so they've just gone through an exercise where they brought the spacecraft in within 600 meters they were at about 20 kilometers away in their parking orbit and then they've gently gently brought it in closer and closer they got within 600 meters and they were just testing before they, they want to go through these tests to make sure they can really control it. That's very they want, close. They want to go to the right place on the surface. They've already picked that out and they've marked the, the surface to where they're going to go. So the, the idea is, to, yeah, the spacecraft has to come in ever so gently so that it's not moving sideways around the surface, it's coming straight down on the surface, but bear in mind the, the object's rotating. So they have to be rotating at exactly the same speed and then they have to bring it down uh, just gently onto the surface grab the bit and then come off again mm. they're not going to try to stay on the surface oh they're so precise the japanese yeah. though they and are very good at yeah it. well so this is this is very this will be a very exciting thing to do that and they've got a couple more landers with them that they can send down again so they're going to do this a few times but uh, so the, the, they're just training up and sometime in october maybe later october they're actually going to go ahead and actually gr try to grab the bit of that surface once they've got it those bits of that the, the samples that they've obtained will be returned to Earth in a capsule uh, and sometime in a few years' time they'll reach, get back to Earth and I think they're landing it in the middle of Australia and these capsules will come through and they'll have these pristine bits of the solar system we've never what, had before. What type of material is it? Well, it'll be, uh, well, it'll be a sort of rocky sort of material but it's, it'll have organic material mixed into it. Um, it's actually got a complex chemistry, the stuff that built the planets. Um, and, uh, you know, we see a bit of this in some types of meteorites. So some types of meteorites uh, have been sort of been molten and uh, broken apart by collisions and so on. They're, they're the one sort. But there's other rare uh, organic rich meteorites as well, and they're very rare. And so, and of course, when we receive them on Earth, they've come firing flying through the atmosphere getting really heated up so it's not easy to get a pristine piece of it it's mm. the, you know they've so had a pretty violent encase it in the capsule yeah so they're bringing it back and it'll be like so that that's sort of an important uh, this is an important mission now and uh, and nasa have a similar one osiris rex that's approaching another asteroid yep and that's going to be doing a summer and that, that's sort of in december they rendezvous with uh, their um, um ben the asteroid bennu that they're picked for similar reasons so it's a very exciting time for exploring the 
asteroids and uh, and the solar system. The naked eye planets at the moment, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, all visible at some time in the evening sky. Yeah, it's been a great show, actually, because uh, not only that, Mars was at opposition, which means the Earth and Mars came closer than they had been since 2003. And so Mars was really bright. It's brighter or even a bit, little bit brighter than it's Jupiter. Really, it's a little bit more orange yet. It's not that yeah. really white light, Mars. No, no, it? you can see that it's sort of a really ochre, yep. ochre colour, and Jupiter's a sort of a tawny colour like Saturn. Um, and Venus is very white because it's just covered by cloud, and yep. so they're, they're, you can tell them apart from their colours and brightness. But, uh, yeah, so right now, um, just after sunset, uh, you've got um, Venus, very bright, um, in the western sky. Just a bit higher in the sky, you've got Jupiter, mm. um, a bit higher up, uh, and so Jupiter's uh, in Libra, just near the head of Scorpius, mm. uh, for the, if you know the constellations. And then just uh, Saturn's a little further up. Um, it's near the, it's in Sagittarius, uh, the, back, the sort of tail end of, which is off the tail end of Scorpius. And further over then um, uh, you have, um, you have Mars. And so, so the bright, those bright naked planets. The only one missing is is Mercury. Where's it gone? Well, Mercury's just still it's orbiting around the sun, of course, and it's at the moment it's too close to the sun to see. But sometime right. in October, it will make a, a reappearance low down in the western sky. So we'll again see all five naked eye planets in the sky at one time. And on you know tonight, Saturday night, if you sort of get out in the uh, um, early evening, you should be able to see the uh, the the will be the th crescent moon will be there as well. So, and that's moving along past the planets over the next few days. So it's a great it's great for just for looking with the naked eye and uh, seeing those planets and identifying them. I, I often talk to people, you know, friends of mine at tennis club and so on that, um, you know are thrilled to find that the thing that you can point in the sky is Mars because they've never seen it in their life. I've only, I, I uh, sent Grant an email uh, about two months ago saying, what's that bright star in the sky? No, no, son, no star over there. That's Mars. Yes. Uh, and ever since that night, I've been following it. And, and, and you can I, see it moving from, you know, over a few nights, you can see that it's it's moving against the stars. I mean, the move, movement's quite noticeable. It's, it's really cool because now I can recognise... Yeah. Um, four planets in the sky when I look at them most pretty much any night um, and that's cool that, yeah. that you can slowly start building up a little bit more knowledge uh, constellations not my game uh, Southern Cross in the pot is about as yeah, far as yeah, I go yeah. there yeah they, they take a little bit more time but mm. the sort of key landmarks that you can sort of sum I, I don't there's a lot of smaller constellations I'd have to go and pull out a chart to identify mm. them uh, it's not really my so forte at all. Dr. Grant Christie, thank you very much, and we look forward to talking again next week. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Fast approaching the latest news from News Hub here on Radio Live. The Weekend Variety Wireless continues. Movies with James Crute and the lovely Max Cryer along after 9 o'clock.